This morning we enter into the fourth week of Advent and our scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 2, the first 18 verses. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and lied him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom his favor rests. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, and made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child, and all who heard it marveled at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who are new this morning or exploring Christian faith, the word Advent means arrival. And so during the Advent season, we celebrate Christ's first arrival in anticipation of his second. And we've been over the last four weeks considering our need and God's promise and God's plan. And this morning, we're going to examine and really celebrate and marvel at this announcement. And this text is not uh, merely uh, nostalgic which in, uh, during the Christmas season, it's almost red with like a nostalgia. But it's not nostalgic, sentimental imagery. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not metaphorical poetry. This text is history. And Christian faith is rooted in something that God has done in human history. Caesar Augustus, in verse 1, he was born Gaius Octavius, and he was given this title Augustus in Rome in 27 BC. It's human history. And sometimes that can get lost in the jingle jangle of the Christmas season because what's interesting about the Christmas season, uh, you know, and it's fun and enjoyable, so I'm not uh, trying to be some sort of a religious Scrooge. He doesn't want to just enjoy the fun things there are to enjoy in the Christmas season. But one of the challenges of the Christmas season is it reduces everything and makes it all quite normal. And on this Sunday, as we celebrate the announcement of the birth of Christ, I just want to remind you, church, that the core of our faith is not normal. Uh, blowout sales are normal. Shopping is normal. Having patches, packages arrive at your door is normal. Uh, I listen to the music on the radio during uh, the Christmas season and I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. But all during the year, we write a lot of songs that sound like 
baby, I love you. I need you. The time is now. I can live without you. You complete me. You, you make my life alive. And then we write Christmas songs that have all the same lyrics, but there's some sleigh bells in the background. That's pretty normal. It's enjoyable. I enjoy it. You enjoy it. It's fun, but it's also really normal. And then every once in a while, a song plays on the radio, and they're like, why can't Christmas be all year round? And I'm like, it kind of is. I mean, I mean yeah, we're, we, we, don't, we don't whistle Christmas carols in, in, in July because that's for crazy people. But apart from that, just the sort of the, the jovialness of like, let's just be kind and whatever. I mean, this is all very normal. But God, the creator of all things, incarnating himself coming into our space and announcing it's his space, that's not normal. I would be happy to argue that is endlessly interesting. The God and creator of all that is comes into our space. What are the implications of this? This is fantastic and just tremendously interesting. There's a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he talks about the rise of the eminent frame in his work. And as uh, the modern West, the obsession and the insistence that there is only the eminent frame, uh, he argues, the idea that the world is only a part of a natural order, it is only understandable within reference to the natural order, and the world cannot and should not be understood outside of the imminent frame, leaves us as humans longing for the transcendent. If there is only eminence, we cannot argue the fact that we long for transcendence. And we seek transcendence in so many ways. And uh, this is like an ecclesiastical groan. He uses the phrase in his work, we are haunted by a longing for the transcendent. We make all manner of things transcendent. And the problem with making things transcendent that are not transcendent, of course, is that leads to uh, all sorts of problems, which makes me think of another Taylor, not Charles Taylor, but another Taylor who recently penned, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. And I think that Taylor, I appreciate her low anthropology, for those of you who got that, there's like four or five Swifties in here who are like really reserving their enthusiasm right now. But anyways, the rest of you after the service can just Google that phrase. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Oh, that philosopher Taylor. Now listen, when we, when we reduce the human reality to the imminent, we are haunted by a longing for the transcendent. Now, the good news of the announcement of Christmas, it is the announcement that of the transcendent God, who is real, who is broke into our imminent frame. So let's take a look at this text this morning. I want to explore a couple of things about the phrase, glory and peace. Uh, but before I get into that, I want to mention something um, of, right at the beginning of Jesus' life, even before he's born, you know, he's already suffering a rejection, so that those of us who trust in him and turn to him and and believe in him will receive adoption. It's right here in, in the beginning. Even in verse 7 when it says that classic phrase, there was no room for him in the end. And I remember that uh, when I was a kid and I watched a lot of Christmas plays at the church that I went to, they just loved putting on plays. And what's nice about that is it's, you know, it's, en- it's enjoyable for the congregation. But what's challenging about it is when things that are cosmically divine get reduced to sty- styrofoam props, sometimes it can be confusing as a kid. 
And, and, and so when you watch the Christmas story uh, in a small church with styrofoam props, sometimes it's difficult to grasp the grandness of it. I mean, once I saw Mrs. Pinkston in a bathrobe, you can't unsee that. And the organ player is never the same after that. It just changes things. And it says there's no room in the inn. Uh, but I wanted to just consider that um, this isn't just him going to the Ramada and there's no room there. There's two rooms for inn uh, in the Greek. Uh, one is uh, Pandokian, and the other one is Kataluma. Pandokian is like a public inn. Kataluma is a space in your house that you, they would call an inn, which was reserved for when your family comes, they can stay as long as they need to, or travelers come, they stay. Ancient world homes were like one-bedroom homes where they would bring the animals in at night. When I did some uh, work in Ethiopia uh, years ago, uh, before planting Redeemer here, um, I would go to some of these uh, homes out in rural, rural Ethiopia that were very much this way. They bring the animals in at night to s- keep them from predators. And it's just a one-room home and they dug out like mangers in the stone where they would put the hay and put the food for the animals. And then the spare room where the family would stay, either there or on the roof, was called the kataluma. That's the word here in the Greek, the inn. There's no room for, there's no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn. Not at the Ramada, going to their family and nobody willing to give up their bed for a pregnant woman. So the rejection of Jesus even at the beginning from the cradle to the grave, uh, even here, here we had to get a hint of it, that uh, there's something about this shame that the, that the family is clearly not excited about and Jesus is even enduring this, even in the beginning, uh, for the sake of those of us who would later put our faith in him and would not be rejected and experience rejection but incredible adoption. So this morning I want us to explore this phrase, uh, that comes in the announcement of glory and peace. And uh, I want us to think about how it describes our need. Uh, let's, so let's begin there. Glory and, glory and peace, it describes our need. The, the this announcement reminds us that our glory needs to be in God in the highest. And if we reject the transcendent and say there's only the eminent frame, then we're going to make other things highest. And the only answer to the deepest longing in the human soul is to put what is actually highest, highest. And that is, of course, the worship of God. The driving force under every unloving act is the refusal to glory in God in the highest, because inevitably uh, we make our own self-interest highest, we make our ideology higher, highest, we make our desires, our wants, our needs highest, we make our happiness in the moment highest, Anything that is a barrier to what we want has to be removed from our lives. The, this problem that we have with glorying in the wrong thing in the highest doesn't just leave us with a glory problem, but it leads right into a peace problem. We glory in the wrong thing, we're not going to have peace. Um, this is because we live in a world where something is always threatening our peace. So if I don't glory in God in the highest, then you can fill in the blank to whatever might be the most important thing in your life. But we live in a world where the most important thing in your life can be taken. We see in the news every week, somewhere on the planet, the most important thing in many people's lives is being eradicated and taken. Some of you have experienced having tremendously important things in your life taken. And so if we glory in the wrong thing, we're going to have a major peace problem. Because our peace can get drained out of our soul with just, a, just an infuriating uh, level of sort of uh, speed and meaninglessness as the suffering of the world is 
you know, seems so ridiculous and arbitrary and uh, doesn't play favorites and suffering just hits all of us in different ways. And we can be left with a tremendous peace problem. Peace can just get drained out of our soul like a toddler throwing your keys in the toilet and just deciding. Ugh. And it can, life can just feel that frivolous. The ways in which things can be removed and taken from our lives. The glory problem will lead to a peace problem. Because it can be unsettling uh, to feel the need to sort of control everything so that we can have peace. We have anxiety over things that we can't control. We can have bitterness when life blocks the object of our glory, the object of our peace. So Jesus comes to give us peace with God. So that in the face of trials and horrors and sadness, we can have the peace of God. Because we're actually glorying in him in the highest. Jesus even speaks about the peace that he brings being otherworldly. Very, you know, in contrast to everything that is normal. Not normal. Where later in Jesus' teachings he actually says, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This otherworldly peace that can be present, not at the absence of conflict, but in the middle of conflict. Not at the absence of horror and tears and sadness and tragedy, but even in the midst of it, this is the peace that Jesus offers. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just live with a constant peace problem if I have a glory problem. So glory and peace, it describes our need. But glory and peace also describes Christ's mission. And in verse 14, we get the announcement, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom his favor rests. And it's an interesting phrase I want us to think about for a minute. Uh, Peace among those on whom his favor rests. Peace to all those. In the Greek, it's arene and anthropos. Anthropos is, of course, where we get the English word anthropology. Peace to the humans. Peace to all those on whom his his favor rests. And this word favor in the Greek, it, it means delight and satisfaction. There's, an, there's a sense of a total inclining toward something because there's just a deep affinity. This favor, giving favor because there's such a satisfaction. It's five stars, two thumbs up, favor. So just think for a second about the context of this announcement. If, if you've read from Genesis to Malachi, which is everything that happened before this, God's not really looking down much and saying, oh my goodness, my heart is just bursting towards these people who have five stars and two thumbs up and who I'm fully satisfied in. That's not the narrative. In fact, before this announcement, the people of God have gone through 400 years of silent nights. God has not spoken to his people for four centuries because they have been turning from him and glorying in the wrong thing for millennia. And God has finally stopped the last words of the prophets in Malachi to Matthew, well, and Luke here, the the gospel writers. It's 400 years. And so after 400 years of silent nights, the announcement comes, and the announcement is, fear not. Which is clearly not what they deserve. Clearly what all of God's people deserve is fear this. 
You know, the 1938 Humphrey Bogart Christmas? Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. I mean, that's kind of what we deserve. But what we get is fear not. This favor, it's, it, it, it's completely undeserved. How can a holy God, who is so holy, he hasn't spoken for 400 years because his, his people have just been idolatrous for absolute centuries, how can this holy God promise peace to undeserving sinners? It's because he's coming in grace to die for the undeserving sinners. The glory and peace not only describes our humanity's need, but it describes Christ's mission. This isn't only an angelic proclamation announcing Christ's birth. It's also pointing to the necessity for his death. How are we going to get the favor to rest on us? The one who has come to do what we could not do. The one who has come to get God's favor to rest on us. God's ultimate goal in his gospel, right? To reunite his, himself to his creation. So in verse 12, the shepherds are given this sign, and the text says that they're going to find this babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And as they were looking at that babe wrapped in the swaddling cloths, lying in the manger, they're seeing an image of the gospel. I don't, know that, I don't think that they knew, the shepherds knew exactly what they were looking at. But later, on this side of the cross in the empty tomb, we could look back on what the shepherds would have looked at, and we could say, oh my goodness, They were looking at a picture of the gospel, the image of the innocent Christ child wrapped in strips of linen, lying in a stone manger, foreshadows the innocent Christ wrapped in linen strips of grave clothes, lying in a stone tomb. This gift of God's grace and adoption for this glorious eternal life that is being promised. Um... When, when the Apostle Paul was reflecting back on what Christ actually did, and he was speaking in Athens, and he was giving a speech publicly, Susan and I had the privilege of like standing in that spot, because you know, six years ago for our 20th anniversary, we, we wanted to go to Greece, and we were able to go there, and I stood there with the Oropagus behind me, and there's like a temple of Zeus way over there, and there's a temple of Diana over here, and there's like this open open air sort of pantheon where the, the philosophers would just stand and share their philosophies and people would sit and just sort of listen to the philosophy of the day. And when Paul was talking about the resurrection, the Athenians, some of them were like, you're drunk, you're a crazy person. But many of them also said, we want to hear you again about this. Because you're talking about not leaving the material world to go off to some ethereal place called heaven. You're talking about a physical bodily resurrection. You're actually talking about a glorified humanity. You're talking about the renewal of nature and the renewal of the body and the renewal of life. We will hear you again on this matter. You see, right here at the beginning, this announcement of glory and peace is a glorious foreshadowing of this eternal life, or you could also translate it, life unto the age We're living in an age, an age of suffering and death and war and injustice. We're we're living in a particular age, but there is an age to come. And this is being gloriously announced in the uh, the same powerful picture 
of uh, the gospel being seen by the shepherds uh, as they look down at this Christ child. So glory and peace, it describes our need and it describes Christ's mission, but it also describes our message. And so I want to close our time this morning thinking about this. The most important event of all time, the most important announcement containing the most important news of all time, coming to the most underwhelming, undeserving audience of all time. Shepherds doing night shift, hanging on a hillside. This is underwhelming. The Babylonian Talmud, I'm going to read a section of it. It's it's a collection of teaching from rabbi over centuries and centuries. Sanhedrin 25b. This is how it describes shepherds. Shepherds are dishonest and disqualified from bearing witness because they are, quote, as robbers and tax collectors. So this is the way that the culture understood shepherds. And this is the audience God chooses to give the most important announcement of all time to. You know, not too long ago, uh, Nigel was visiting Rebecca in Toronto and they were, spent some time together and they went to a comedy show. And at this comedy show, uh, the attendance was incredibly small. They, they said they had a great time. They really enjoyed it. But there was like six to eight people there. I mean, it was such a small turnout. They felt bad for the, the performers, the comedians who have spent so much time preparing for the show. And then the curtains open and there's six people in there. But then later, Nigel was watching Netflix and he saw one of the comedians from the show. And it's like, oh, wow, this guy's career worked out. Now, is that what's going on here? Is this just a big divine waste, this poor turnout? And then maybe the shepherds see the resurrected Jesus in the 40 days that he's walking the earth for 40 days after the resurrection. They're like, huh, his career turned out. Is that what's going on? Just this massive mishap? This meager audience is an audience no royalty would have ever chosen. But I don't think this is a waste. I think this is a message. And it's our message. Church, we are the ragamuffins on the hillside. We, like all humanity, unable to find peace and favor with God because of our sin, unaware. The shepherds are not looking for Jesus. It's, it's staggering that, God, that this is who God chose to reveal himself to. Our classmates, our co-workers, our neighbors, everybody, we're all ragamuffins on the hillside. And I want you to notice the gospel pattern in the life of the shepherds. God sought them in grace. They are not looking for him. And then in response, they sought Jesus. And then they worshiped Jesus. And then they went into town and they told others about Jesus. And in verse 17 to 18, it says that the shepherds made known the saying that had been told to them. So now these social rejects are the ones sharing the gospel announcement. This is who God gives. I just told you that they're not qualified to bear witness. And God's like, these are the ones that are going to go. And they're going to say that they saw the Christ child, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed the one, the one who would deliver Israel. All of these messianic implications, 2,000, more than 2,000, thousands and thousands of years of, of, uh, of political history, the Messiah has come. 
You know who's going to be the deliverer of that? Yeah, we're going to get these tattered Amalians on the hillside doing the night shift. They're the, ones, they're the ones that are going to do it. It says, all who heard what the shepherd said marveled. That is quite something. That is a quiet miracle. They marveled at the shepherds. This teaches us something about where the power is, church, and you and I, in sharing this gospel. This is a work of God's grace. They marveled at the gospel message shared by people. These shepherds would have been the first to say, I'm not qualified to do this. I'm not trained to do this. I never went to school to do this. I'm not gifted to do this. P.S. I don't even think the, the, people, the townspeople have a whole lot of respect for me. So I'm not sure you picked the right person to actually be the one that's sharing this message. God did not send his angelic host to appear above the temple and then choose a handful of scholars who had an admirable and acute and academic grasp of his law. He did not choose them. He chose a group of sheep watchers to be the first to spread the news that the king had come. And I am saying this because if God used the simple lips of those shepherds whose lives had been changed by God's gift of grace, may he use the simple lips of every single member in this church. May he use our stammering lips to go into the city as those who've been changed by the gift of God's grace with a humble confidence to give a defense for the hope in the gospel that we believe in. We don't need another book. We don't need a course. We don't, I mean, I, I could teach a course every, at the library and, and say, okay, that's it. Everything that I absorbed in seminary, I'm going to do free seminary for anybody who will come. And then I take you through systematic theology and I take you through all that. I could do all of that. But at the end of that, many of us would still be going, well, I don't know if I'm really, the, I don't know if I'm trained. I don't know if I've got enough training. You have plenty of training. If, you, if you've been saved and you love Jesus longer than, you know, seven days, you know, <laughs> you're infinitely more qualified than all of these shepherds. We don't need more training. We just need to be blown away by grace. We need awe and boldness and humility to give a defense for the hope that we see in Jesus. Hope was announced. Angels sang. The undeserved were blown away. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Amen.